in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and listeners like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because after all, we're all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the writing of Jenny Phillips, who holds a Master's in Divinity from Union Theology Seminary in New York. In a time when we are inundated with competing claims regarding the ways in which humans use and misuse the environment, the Bible offers clear principles that can serve as a framework for Christians as they consider issues around creation care. Our dynamic ecosystems revel with greatness in God's creation. The cycles of day and night push and pull the tides between water and land, steering the precipitation and light that nourish the lush plants, which then in turn feed creatures of the sea, sky, and land. Degradation of the environment is adversative to God's work. Like farmers in the field, we are called not only to plant seeds, but to grow them. In the parable of the talents, Jesus teaches that humans are called to do more than simply conserve God's resources. Rather, they are to help them flourish and increase. People of faith must fully commit themselves to caring for the land and helping all of creation to flourish. My guest today is Darcy Hansen, a very lovely woman on her own spiritual route to obtaining her Master's in Divinity from Portland Seminary. And someday I'm sure myself and others will be quoting her writings on the melodic airwaves. I was graced with Darcy's presence at a lecture I was giving at Lewis and Clark College Graduate Studies Program on Green Burial. So I was immediately drawn to her because of her passion for exploring pathways to better dialogue and to help reframe the death narrative, both culturally and within the church. Darcy, we participate in a universally shared human end-of-life experience. So although a biblical understanding of death offers a source of comfort to many Christians facing morality— Death is usually pretty unpleasant. It's a very unpleasant truth, and it's avoided in our contemporary American culture. What has your personal research proven to you? Elizabeth, thank you for welcoming me today. Um, As you probably would not be surprised, uh, my research has shown that most people fear death. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a great revelation, but but even within Christian communities, we see this. As uh, we sidestep conversations about death and even the ways that we deal with the death of our loved ones, um, we fear the unknown and that is associated with death. And because of that, we tend to gloss over pain and suffering, um, often with Bible verses uh, that we feel like might be reassuring or other words that we hope might alleviate the tension that people experience um, during the process of maybe their loved ones who are dying or who have died. Uh, I've also found that this fear is evidenced and perpetuated in our medical communities and uh, our funeral industries. And so um, these these industries have um, driven the way we think about death ever since the Civil War. Um, when our death industry really 
began to change from one that was uh, mostly um, taken care of by family members and within a community to becoming more of a professionalized and institutionalized um, type of um, care for our dead. So, um, yeah, it's a it's it's a fascinating thing to start really diving into. It is, and I love that idea uh, that you're explaining that it did change. Civil War came, Abraham Lincoln, the embalming. All of a sudden, we took death out of the home and made it something that became more of the funeral industry. And I love that you touch on the Bible verses, because really, there's wonderful things that we can interpret and say. And three of the interpretations of death that I find that are really clear with the Bible that are brought up a lot in Christian culture, there's the physical death, the spiritual death, the eternal death. And really, to touch on those, the physical death is that death that is best known among mankind. I think it affects every person in various ways, being emotional, it's final, it's that loss of life for the deceased person, and it's the death of the person that really affects things because the body is the flesh and the breath is the spirit and the being is the soul. The second interpretation of the Bible regarding death is spiritual death. I think that expression spiritual death never really appears in the whole of the Bible. It's that concept that's easily understood and it's really figurative. It's that idea of the loss of life And the death you're talking to, in this case, is spiritual, um, the spiritual life. So eternal death, again, I think we talk about Judgment Day when that rolls around, and according to Scripture, no good, right, if you're not a believer. So when we talk about these three main interpretations of death in the Bible, what do you think about these, and how do these speak to you? I think um, previously I probably would have held um, a very— a distinct line between them and um, maybe even held a more conservative perspective on them. I mean, physical death is is an easily understood one in the sense that we we live here in this space, we fill these bodies, and throughout our lifetime, our bodies are aging and changing, and eventually they either give out or are diseased. Um, and we we do die, and we we feel the sting of that when we lose our loved ones, or we we notice the sting when people are going through that process as well. Uh, spiritual death to me is more that um, separation, that separation from the divine, from God, that uh, happens. You know, within the Christian faith, that would happen with the fall, when shame entered and Adam and Eve were um, led to sin. And so the spiritual death is that separation of uh, broken relationship in that sense. And so uh, that is something that um, most Christians would say Jesus came to reconcile. Not only only that, but then eventually we we have this eternal death that I— that one to me is mysterious. There's lots of different references in Scripture, um, not being a, a biblical scholar, but more of a spiritual director um, bent with my master's program. Uh, I would say that the eternal death is, yes, it's a judgment, but I'm not sure how all that plays out. So I hold that one much more loosely. But I would say that um, they're, they're definitely all three of those are are mentioned in scripture and are given plenty of space and uh, perspectives to um, consider 
So. So as a theologian who is going to be a doctor of theology at some point, what do you find is the greatest disconnect between the church and the holistic theological understanding of dying and death? You know, uh, theologically, I found that Christian denominations handle death in different ways. So some denominations, I think, that have a more liturgical bent where they have a set calendar of scripture that they go through each Sunday. Um, Typically, those have a three-year cycle. And within that, it's naturally built in that lament and death are topics that they touch on. So I think in that sense, some some communities have a better um, ability, I think, to engage with sorrow and suffering. But I come from a more non-denominational evangelical background. And typically, we have no language for it. We, a lot of times, um, have a gap in our understanding of creation. Uh, So we also have a gap in our understanding of our role within creation. And then there's another gap that exists with Christ's incarnation. So like even at a Christmas Eve service, you might be singing about an empty tomb as opposed to just Jesus being born. Like, we have problems with understanding how we live in our flesh. And even though we would often say we want to live like Jesus, we really don't want to discuss how how that entails the flesh and even the process of Jesus' death in that we prefer much more often to just go straight to the empty tomb and the victory over death. And so I think that just theologically having a better understanding of death and reconciliation and what that means um, that in the ways that Christ brought that from you know our conception all the way through death and then into eternity I think there's just some some gaps along the way that could use a little bit more um, teaching upon and support within the communities okay so I have a new title for you from everything you're saying here you're a eco chaplain eco chaplaincy have you heard of that one it's kind of formal no i never i not i've not heard of that term before i like it i love it actually i think it means to advocate for the environment and for all our ecosystems inhabitants but also staying sort of true to what we're learning here it involves raising the noise level i think initiating the stewarding the conversation about losses and hardship for life and the ecosystem but also salvation, also the Sabbath, all these things that we hold dear as well. So probably the same genus, different species, kind of like if you're going to order a Diet Coke or a Diet Pepsi, you got the same thing going on, but there's a different bit of a flavor there. So I think you really inhabit that, that eco-theologian idea, the idea of arguing the importance of seeing God in a green matter at this time in the planetary history. What do you see as attempts towards reconciliation for our land and the American way of death? So my research focused on the reconciliation between the American way of death and the land in in the sense that, um, I don't know if your listeners know, but the American way of death typically involves um, a person dying within a medical hospital and then their bodies being sent to Um, the funeral home to be processed um, by the mortician. Is that the proper term? Great. Um, Their bodies are processed 
in ways that are very invasive. I've never heard the pro- the process <laughs> term, but that's a good one too. Well, I was trying to be discreet. <laughs> yeah. um, but their bodies are processed in a way that uh, allows them to be uh, filled with chemicals so that they're able to have a rest in peace look to them. Um, then their bodies are often placed into medical, medical, uh, metal caskets and uh, lined with beautiful satin. And it's interesting because I remember when my grandparents died, all, all four of my grandparents had open casket uh, funerals. And I remember thinking it was really weird to see them with this, like, I don't know if it was like a forced look upon their face. It didn't really look like them, but it kind of did. And I kept thinking they were just going to sit up at some point. And so I, but I didn't know what it was about that that made me really uncomfortable. But as I continue, as I started learning about how these industries care for our loved ones, um, I was a little mortified. And and not only how they care for our loved ones, but also how uh, all these metal caskets and the cement vaults that are in cemeteries, they contaminate the lands. And so in many ways, our cemeteries are toxic landfills. They're filled with loved ones whose bodies have been filled with chemicals that are laid in caskets that are filled with chemicals that are surrounded by enough cement to pave a road from New York to Detroit every year. Um, and so I think that with all that, I just really started thinking like, what are, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And so I started asking those questions. But, and I think as Christians, it is our role to care for the planet, but it's also our role to honor our dead. And how can we do that in a better way, in a greener way that um, allows them to go from, if we truly believe that we're made from dust, then how do we go back to dust in a way that is um, that can be beautiful? So. I have found a fellow green burialist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. So I want to fill in the listening audience to what green burial is. I think people hear about it. They see this in newspaper articles and magazines. But what we're talking about is simply just burial, what we've done for most of our existence, that beautiful, eco-friendly alternative to traditional burial, just like those everyday choices, I think, regarding impact and environment. You know, we recycle, we compost, we carpool. We wear our mm-hmm. Birkenstocks and bring our cloth bags to the store. So it's the end-of-life choice that contributes to the preservation of the environment, right? All right. So what are your thoughts then? So we're reconciling this, the American way of death and land, and talking about bodies not being embalmed, placing in the biodegradable shrouds. Um, what is your thought then? We're returning things to the soil. We're providing nutrients for native plants. We're nourishing wild habitats. What else? Yeah, I think um, this was all a new concept to me. Um, Until two years ago, I'd never even heard of green burial. And so as I began doing research on it, um, I learned that this movement started in, in like, late 90s. And um, it began with Dr. Billy Campbell in South Carolina, and he began a, a a preserve after experiencing the death of his father. And he was like, we could, we could do better. He got, once he understood what was happening to the loved ones, he felt that if he informed other people that they would make different choices. 
And so I think that uh, trying to educate people on on the options that are out there because the, the interesting thing to me is that the options aren't necessarily being driven by Christians. They're being driven by um, people who just love the environment. And those could be Christians, but a lot of times they aren't always. And so within our Christian communities, having those conversations about how to better care for our environment and actually just go back to old ways of doing things. I mean, people have been caring for their dead for thousands of years, and those haven't all, our dead haven't always been passed off to professionals to do that. Like family members have, have done that. And so I think definitely um, I had heard of the, the Green Burial Movement um, and I think one of the another another attempt people have made is cremation. It tends to use less resources, but even still with cremation, it tends to also pollute the air. But um, you know, I think the fact that it takes up a smaller footprint is is excellent. But it also uh, maintains that illusion of control over and keeps people at arm's length for experiencing what death really looks like. And I think that that's one of our biggest detriments is that it's been sanitized in our culture so much that we don't, we have such a big disconnect between how we um, envision death because we don't even know what it looks like or smells like or feels like in the sense that most people never even touch their dead family members. And so, um, or see them sometimes, or if they do, it's for a brief moment to say goodbye before they're they're cared for within the professional industry. But I think definitely there are many steps that are beginning to emerge that'll give us more options to have those conversations within our faith communities. So I want to go to a few steps back to conversations in faith communities such as pastoral care. When someone's still alive, we have dying on the horizon. So in the church, we want to model death as a normal event. I think there are prayers that are said. We have many acts of ordinary kindness. I think there's gifts of food, um, conversation, transportation, visits. Maybe if you're Catholic, the priest will come say prayers. Um, maybe there'll be something held in the church, something, a service in the honor of your loved one. What do you think is missing from the pastoral care for transitioning church members? You know, I think I think one of the biggest pieces that is missing is isn't I mean there are I think there are definitely some pieces in the dying process and post-death but I think it's the pre part that we're really missing it's the how do we have the conversations before we even get to that place how do we start informing and educating our communities of the various options of as to how to honor our own dying process or the, the dying process of our loved ones? And how does that incorporate a more holistic approach to care for our environment as well? And so I think educationally, we just have to start having the conversations. And um, I've been in church communities where they will have um, financial planning seminars to make sure that your uh, financial resources are being left in trust or in legacy for your loved ones, but I've never been in a community where they say, you know what, let's let's circle up and let's talk about how do we die well? What could that look like? 
because I, I honestly believe that if we can figure out that piece, it also informs how we live. And so I think educationally having those um, conversations before that time is necessary. I think economically, those after people are educated economically, it's going to um, drive industries to just really start um, making changes. And then ecologically, we'll be able to better connect with the land in ways that, uh, you know, give us a, a, a more embodied perspective that we're not this hierarchical, you know, the pinnacle of God's creation, but we're actually part of the whole thing. And so pastorally, understanding that that we are part of a bigger picture and our decisions impact not only, you know, the here and now, but also for generations to come and how we treat the land and our loved ones along the way. So, and, and theologically, I think it requires us to just start having the harder conversations and digging into um, topics that most people don't like to deal with, which is um, a lot of, there's a lot of unknowns. We don't have all the answers to what happens when we die. And so we just, we tend to like to make it really neat and tidy. And so pastorally, really trying to develop a more robust understanding of um, of death, I think would be very important. But I think that you know, hospice, I think, um, has been an important step in getting people um, to become more familiar with the death process in a in a beautiful way, and it also equips people afterwards to walk through those days. But bringing community around people, I think, is also important, as you noticed, um, as you mentioned in that uh, introduction part. So with your school and your studies, to have a master's degree that you're going to obtain here very, very quickly, to have applied for a doctorate degree, which you will be getting not too far on the horizon, I imagine you study quite a bit, and you're writing papers, and you're reading, and you're research, and this is probably something that you eat, breathe, and do in your free time as well. (laughs) Question for you, have you heard of the concept of the blue flame? No. You know what that is? No. Okay. All right. So... The idea of that is how can you give another person water if your own bucket is dry? Mm. And how can we serve others if we have nothing to give? So we all have spiritual gifts that we've been given. And that blue flame is that spiritual gift that allows you to feel energized and inspired and really makes you feel like your love tank is full. So let me give you an example. Richard Simmons All right. So he used to call 50 to 100 people every day. These are overweight people. He'd tell them that they were loved, that people cared about them. Um, He'd email them. And basically, this darling sweet man really wanted to inspire people. He wanted to make them laugh and he wanted to sing to them and make them feel motivated. Okay. People would hear that story and say, oh, gosh, that is overwhelming. That's too much time out of my schedule, out of my day. I can't do it. But you know what? That was Richard's blue flame that gave him the energy to go mm-hmm. on and tackle mm-hmm. more things. What do you think is your blue flame? Uh, right now, it's definitely how do we how do I bring forth some type of um, tool resource to begin these conversations? Um, one of the things as a spiritual director that I have learned to love and embrace is darkness and silence, and so I think that 
figuring out how to incorporate that into our theology of how do we really get people to begin embracing death and understanding um, Christ's reconciliatory work in that is is of paramount importance because at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And so how do we do that in a way that leaves a legacy for our loved ones that um, informs how they live as well? And so, yeah, I think my, my family thinks I'm a little on the crazy side because I'm pretty fascinated with all this stuff. Well, pretty soon (laughs) you're going to be able to say, I'm a doctor. So with that doctor of divinity at the education, what are you planning on doing with that besides admire it on your wall in a frame? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I didn't even know I would go to seminary. So I think for me, um, I hold all of that very loosely, but I I really hope to bring forth a gift for the church to um, really begin uh, figuring out how we deal with the process of dying and how that informs how we live and how we care for the environment at the same time. I think people might have that misguided idea that seminarians are men who are trying to go on and be chaplains or in the priesthood. How did you as a woman get here in a quick recap? Oh, quick recap. Um, the I just felt like God started opening the doors to that and and I said yes. And so it's interesting at Portland Seminary, 70% of our student population is women. Really? And so, yeah, and they're not all paid ministry either. So I think that I really believe God's raising up an army of women to really care for the needs of the church in this complicated cultural context that we find ourselves in. And when you talk with your friends who go to your school and who are primarily women, what are they planning on doing with their divinity degree? Some are already in professional vocational ministry positions. Uh, others are moving into what one one classmate termed as third space ministry. So not within a church, not within a parachurch organization, but in smaller ministry contexts like spiritual direction, um, mentoring, uh, home churches, just smaller areas of formational, I guess, spaces that are able to fill some of the gaps that maybe you might not find within mainline Christian churches. Do you have a favorite place to study on campus or is all your studying like at home while you're doing dishes? No, I don't do it while I'm doing dishes, but <laughs> yeah. but definitely, um, yeah, I stay at home. I only go to class one day a week, and, and that wasn't I, a female no. crack about the dishes. I figure no. you know you've got a vacuum and <laughs> there's do there's other life. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's life. Life's happening, so definitely. But um, but yes, most of my studies happen at home, and my family has been very supportive in that, and to the point where they take over my chores and different things like that too. So, do they read good. your books and think you have neat information in there? Do my do do my family? Yeah, no, no. My <laughs> husband does sometimes. Yes, my husband he'll pick up my books every every once in a while. Nice. I appreciate you coming on today. You've been listening to KKPZ thirteen thirty AM, The Truth. Thank you to my guest, yeah, Darcy Hansen, almost Doctor Hansen. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other. I was standing by my window on a cold and cloudy day when I saw the hearse come a rolling.